Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today I am joined by a superstar in the para swimming world. Ellie Cole is a four-time Paralympic swimmer and she is the most decorated Australian female Paralympian with 17 Paralympic medals under her belt over those four games, as well as a whole bunch of other medals and accolades and events. She was also the flag bearer for the Australian team in the closing ceremony at Tokyo. So welcome to the podcast, Ellie. Hey, Liz. It's nice to speak to you again. We go way back, don't oh, we? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we do. We do. I remember you as a teenage cheeky blighter uh, at the AIS. In my youth. <laughs> <laughs> Who didn't want to change her prosthetic leg from the old style. Oh, uh, well, I've got a pretty cool prosthetic now and a lot more knowledge about nutrition and food. <laughs> so I'm excited to speak to you about that today. <laughs> cool. So Ellie, can you give us a bit of a brief history about yourself, your impairment, your sport classification and what events you swim in? Sure. My name is Ellie Cole. I'm an Australian Paralympic swimmer. Uh, my impairment is a right leg amputee and I compete in the sport of para swimming. Absolutely love it. Can't get enough of it. And I've competed in a variety of different events. I've kind of changed from like a bit of a sprint program to a 400 freestyle program. I was an IMA when I was younger and then I was a backstroker and butterflyer. So yeah, I've done a little bit of everything, but I've been on the Australian swim team. I think this is my 17th year. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm retiring in 2022. So middle of this year, which I'm looking forward to, but I'll still always be a swimmer. Yeah. Well, I don't think you can breathe that out of you now after that length of time. (laughs) No, I really noticed after Tokyo having a six-week break, like I couldn't wait to get back in. Goodness me. And so what's your classification? What class do you swim in? I swim in S9, SB8, which I don't ever use, the breaststroke Mm -hmm. part, and SM9 for IMs. Okay. And have you always been that classification? Has that ever changed for you? I've always been an S9. I'm very thankful that my disability is fairly obvious and it doesn't change at all it hasn't changed since I was a young girl so my classification has stayed the Mm -hmm. same great and you've certainly achieved a lot over the you're you're only 30 seems like you've you've got enough under your belt for someone who's much older than that so you know what's the journey been like for you how how do you feel like it's changed over that 17 years that you've been on the on the national team um, that's a really interesting question. I, I remember making my first Australian swim team in 2006 and one of our experienced athletes told me back then to treasure every moment because it will go by very quickly. And she was right in a sense, but also very wrong. I feel like my career has flashed before my eyes, but at the same time, there have been so many difficult moments that feels like you know, those parts just dragged on forever Mm. and the enjoyable parts went by really quickly. Obviously, I've grown from a 14-year-old little girl in the sport of swimming to a 30-year-old woman now and I've had a lot of different life experiences throughout my swimming career. So I'm I'm not entirely sure like how much swimming has like contributed to how much I reflect back on what I've done now, but I'm very grateful to have been given the opportunity to be a swimmer 
And like when I do reflect back on my swimming career, I tend to think about the happy moments, which is nice. Good, good. yeah. And you've you've changed uh, locations a number of times, changed coaches a number of times, changed swimming programs a number of times over that over that period of um, seventeen years. So, do you find that you learn something different from each coach and each group that you're you're, you're swimming with? Yeah, you know, I've changed programs probably about six or seven times and usually those changes come about because I've, I've found myself in a really unhappy place and, and have wanted to explore new areas of swimming. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, things have certainly changed for me because you've got to think that when you find a new coach, you find yourself an entire new team to work with as well in the sports professions. So, you know, a new dietitian, mm. you find a new massage, a new physio. And um, it's it's interesting how much you actually have to manage relationships as an athlete mm. and to make sure that your team is working with you to um, achieve a desired outcome. And for me, I've really enjoyed that. I've enjoyed getting to know new people. I've enjoyed the opportunity to learn off so many different professionals and you know, even just speaking to you today, you and I have known each other for 12 years mm-hmm. now, I think. And, you know, I, I, we still share a lot of fond memories and, you know, you've been part of my team. And yeah, it's just, it's nice to build such a wonderful network within the sport. Yeah. And have those ongoing relationships over over time. I think that's one of the nice things, certainly from my side of things, that I build relationships with athletes that can last a, you know, pretty much their entire career, which is very special. Um, it's not, not many people who can do that. Mm. And like, that's the great thing, you know, when you're a young athlete and you're thinking about becoming a professional in your sport, you never really think about the relationships that you're going to make. Mm. And that's like in Tokyo, I certainly realized that's the really special part of being an athlete. And as a para-athlete, how much have you noticed that the amount you need to educate those practitioners has changed over time do you feel like their understanding of parasport has improved over that time or your understanding of your specific needs has changed over time I think it's a bit of both you know I like I said I've grown up in the sport so I have worked with practitioners at a very young age where I was quite naive about everything around Mm -hmm. me And, you know, going through uni and studying sports science gave me a little bit of knowledge and the desire to begin asking questions about, you know, what what was happening in my programs or why decisions were being made in my programs. And for me, I think as I became older and started asking more questions, I enjoyed the opportunity to really learn from those practitioners because I had a genuine curiosity Mm And I think when a practitioner can see that somebody is engaging and does want to learn, it makes that relationship a little bit stronger. Mm-hmm. So in terms of how much that has changed over the Paralympic space, I think I think when I when I enter a new practitioner's room now, there isn't as much uncertainty from that practitioner about the language they should use or how they should best approach a para-athlete. Mm-hmm. I think it's now become more just of an open conversation and I'm not sure if that's because now I'm an older athlete or because practitioners are becoming more educated but that's just what I've experienced in the last few years in particular. Okay yeah I think it's probably a bit of both it's certainly something that 
you know, that we've spoken to a number of practitioners on this podcast and the common theme with that is to, to talk to the athlete to really understand their needs and their specific circumstances of their sport and, and also their impairment. And, and so I think that's really a theme that kind of goes through anyone who works on the Paralympic side, even a little bit more so than even on the Olympic side. Yeah, and, you know, in the Paralympic world, you're going to face so many different impairments and your general route of how to deal with a situation that's presented in front of you might be different case by case to the extreme. And um, I I feel like a lot of practitioners actually thrive Mm -hmm. on that because they have to be creative. You know, I remember when you used to take my skin folds, you couldn't take my skin folds on the right side of my body. And so (laughs) I remember going into the room every single time and you would kind of sit and think about how you were going to, you know, to do what you needed and you would kind of like twist and turn and make yourself into a little pretzel. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, you found a solution and it's it's kind of, yeah, it's nice to, to see people have a challenge put in front of them and find a solution because that's what we've done as para-athletes yeah. for our whole careers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to come back a little bit to more what you do on a day-to-day basis just so that we can kind of get a feel for what does a typical week look like for you from a training perspective. I believe you're currently training with some uh, Olympic athletes. So what does a typical training week look like for you at the moment? It's pretty hard. (laughs) It it always has been hard. So I'm usually in the pool nine times a week. Um, We swim about six to seven kilometers a week so my load is actually a lot higher than what it really ever has been before so I found that really interesting Mm. and we hit the gym three times a week for about an hour and a half so I'm doing like a lot of kilometers in the pool but my gym is a lot more strength based so trying to like manage that is quite difficult at times and um, I used to do like a lot of Pilates and whatnot but I'm, I'm not doing that at the moment but yeah we still have to fit in our physio, massage, dietitian appointments. And I used to go to uni, but I graduated from that. So now I'm just starting to work, which is a lot of fun. I'll ask you in a minute about what work you're doing. And so with that training, what would a typical day's food intake look like for you? Like run us through what a typical day might look like. I have breakfast and a coffee before I go to the pool in the morning. And I think that just gives me a moment to sit by myself actually. Mm-hmm. So I have a pretty small breakfast. I'll just have like a cup of coffee and two pieces of toast or some cereal. Mm-hmm. And then after training, uh, depending on how hard it, it is, I will assess whether I need like a protein shake yep. or I don't know, I kind of assess my post-training breakfast based on what my session yep. was. And then I'll have a pretty regular lunch and then I'll have another snack before training coffee usually again mm-hmm. and um, cereal again. And then um, I get home at like 7 o'clock from training, so I've either pre-prepared dinner or I get straight into cooking dinner. And once again, I, I usually portion my food out based on what I've done in training. Mm-hmm. And so the bigger the day, the, do you tend to put more food into the into your lunch and dinner or do you tend to put more food for bigger days into the pre-post training snacks? I don't necessarily know how difficult my training sessions are going to be until I'm in the middle of them. And so usually my post-training snack will be, will vary in size or, you know, what, what I'm eating 
based on yeah what my sessions were and then I'll also make my meals a bit bigger as Mm -hmm. well and do you find that your appetite increases when you're in heavier training or does your appetite actually decrease my appetite actually decreases Mm -hmm. and I find when I'm really stressed I don't get hungry at all and I don't eat at all so I'm I have to be a very mindful eater because I never really feel hungry and so I have to eat based on what my fatigue feels like and I try to eat enough before I get to that death okay and so (laughs) do you have go-to foods when you are feeling like you you just need to top up that energy but don't have much appetite yeah, I do. I have like a, just a few options in my fridge that I tuck into, whether that's yogurt, whether that's cereal. Sometimes I'll even just have like a banana and oat smoothie with protein powder. Mm. But yeah, I've got a few different options. And I find that when I'm not in training, the amount of food that I eat is probably more than halved. Mm. So I certainly accommodate for what I'm doing in the pool. But yeah, I notice towards the end of the week I start getting a bit fatigued, but I'm not sure if that's because I've swam like 50 kilometres or because I'm 30 <laughs> or because I'm not eating enough. And so I, I'm always questioning myself at the end of the week as to why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. And has your body composition or your weight changed much as over the years? It has. I found that when I was probably hit about 25 years old, my body composition changed quite significantly especially when I moved into training with Kate and Bronte Campbell, I was doing a lot more high intensity Mm -hmm. training and my body shape changed and my composition changed. And as an um, athlete with a disability, I was wearing a prosthetic that was way Mm -hmm. too big for me and had to get a new prosthetic made. And yeah, since I kind of started that program, I've kept the same sort of body composition where it was I was very lean yeah. but not not very muscular at the same time. And it felt like no amount of food that I ate could make me put on weight. And last year I was really struggling actually to keep mm-hmm. weight on, whereas when I was younger and when I knew you and, you know, back in 2012, my decisions around food were very different and I was finding that I was keeping weight on and I couldn't change my body composition but I feel like that has all changed with gaining more knowledge around what I'm eating like I I remember when I used to see you I used to have like four or five triple cheeseburgers a week and I don't I don't do that anymore I certainly am a lot more mindful about what food I'm putting into my Mm -hmm. body but yeah, I also tried to go vegetarian last year and I lost a lot of weight really quickly mm. and got really tired. So yeah, it's just always a learning curve. And yeah, I'm, I'm at the point where I, I do make good eating decisions, but yeah, it's, I'm just finding it really hard with the, just to try and get enough, enough food, food in sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I think that's that lack, that inability for your appetite to really kick in when it needs to makes you have to really think about it a lot when you lost that weight and was that at the time that you were trying that vegetarian diet did you find that did you just feel like you were too full to be able to eat more with the vegetarian style eating yeah I think what I was doing I didn't receive any professional advice around going vegetarian I just knew that eating vegetarian options usually made me feel a Mm. bit better and so I was kind of eating the same portion sizes, but I wasn't getting the fats from Mm. the meat that I would usually get or my meals wouldn't have been as energy dense Mm. 
as when I wasn't eating vegetarian. And I think I, I, I tried it for about a week and then I got really tired. Mm-hmm. And then I went and saw a doctor and got my bloods taken and told her that I was eating vegetarian. <laughs> and she said that with the amount of training that I'm doing, you know, I need to be very careful about what I'm eating. And I was like, okay, maybe I should see a, see a dietitian about this. But I just went back to what I was eating and thought I would give it another go after I retire. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I think, you know, the, you're right. The vegetarian style eating tends to, because you're eating generally higher fibre components, it can dampen your appetite a little bit more. And to get the same amount of protein, for example, and the same amount of calories, you've got to bump up and be really careful with how much of the, you know, particularly if you're using legumes, you have to really bump up the amount that you actually need to eat to to meet the same demands so yeah yeah it was really tricky and I found like I found myself I felt like I was just eating all day mm-hmm. and I just couldn't keep any weight on so I just knew that for my lifestyle it wasn't really going to work mm-hmm. for me at that time yep. yeah but now you can think about maybe coming back to it after the com games Yes, I'll be very interested and maybe I'll give you a ring for some <laughs> advice. Uh, very good idea. What about when you're tapering for a competition? Do you find that your appetite actually sort of comes, it seems like your appetite comes down pretty well when you're not training as much? Have you ever had any issues or had to be extra careful with your food when you're tapering for a competition? No, I find that... Uh, when I'm tapering, I actually, you know, like when I'm stressed, I just honestly do not get hungry. And once again, I have to really be mindful about what I'm eating. And yeah, that's also, it's just really difficult for me at this point in my career with, yeah, my appetite and wanting to eat. And even though if, I don't know, people always tell me, if you're not hungry, you shouldn't eat. But I'm always like, well, if I'm training and I have to prepare myself for a two hour training session, of course I have Mm -hmm. to. And so, you know, that's what I'm thinking every single time I'm training or every single time I'm going into a taper. When I do taper, my portion sizes probably do drop Mm -hmm. a little bit and my carb carbohydrate contents drop quite significantly actually because I'm not swimming seven kilometres, I'm swimming maybe three or four. And so the distances that I'm swimming in that week will be halved. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, so I'll usually accommodate my foods based on once again, what I'm doing in the yeah. pool. And then you usually have a pretty busy swim program when you're at a big meet or even when you're at a small meet, you tend to have a very busy program. So do you have certain snacks that you like to have to keep your energy levels up throughout a day of a swim meet? Not necessarily. So when I have a swimming competition, I'll eat like my breakfast and then go straight to the pool and then almost as soon as I get to the pool I start my warm-up and I'll have a banana before like right before I race and then straight after my race I'll have a protein shake and then I'm back to my room and cooking lunch and I'm huge on eating like I don't know if this is this is what most people do for racing or a competition day but I know that when I need to recover like I'll eat a meal that has plenty of like nutrients and carbs and fats and proteins and everything in there and then I'll go like straight to bed because I know that as I'm sleeping I've got all of that food available to me ready to repair my muscles (laughs) and yeah then when I wake up for the afternoon and final session it's kind of just the same process again Uh yeah that's a I mean I think where I see a lot of swimmers 
fall down is that they're not organised for a day of competition and they're, they're like they finish a swim and and then they, you know, chat around and, and talk to people and then all of a sudden it's lunchtime and they haven't even thought about what they're going to eat and then they want to have a nap. And so a lot of people don't actually do that preparation particularly well for a competition and it undoes all, all the good work that they've done in their training. So it sounds like you've developed a really nice, consistent system that just kind of ticks you over through the day. Yeah, like it's interesting that you say that because a lot of athletes in swimming are very young, like competitive mm. athletes. They still live at home, still live with mum and dad and or their guardians and their food preparation isn't necessarily their 100% responsibility. Whereas I noticed that once I moved out of home and started cooking for myself and I had to be a lot more mindful about what I was cooking for myself because mum wasn't going to make it for me. And, it, you know, it was the same with traveling to competitions that once I moved out of home, I did have to be prepared because I wasn't relying on other people in my family. And I think for a young athlete, that's a really good thing to start practicing when you're young is to not rely on mum and dad to get your food ready because you're the one that's going to be eating it. You're the one that's going to be needing it. And yeah, I, I certainly learned a lot of lessons just having that uh, recovery fall 100% onto me. Yeah. Goldfish are a really common snack used have you, uh, in the US, at least by swimmers. That seems to be their favourite thing. Do you have a what? goldfish? They're, they're, what do you mean? They're little crackers that are, oh, yeah, sorry, water-based sport. No, <laughs> not the goldfish that we think of as in fish swimming around, but they're little goldfish-shaped and coloured crackers. <laughs> so, wherever you go in the States, there's goldfish crackers on the side of the pool because <laughs> people oh, are I have to try some of those <laughs> what, what do they taste like oh a bit like a cross between a twisty and a jats cracker yeah I don't know about that <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound like race food to me oh I'm glad you said that because I've been telling them that for years <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Rising Phoenix documentary that you were in, one of the featured athletes. How important was that documentary to you and, and also your involvement in the We the 15 movement? Can you tell us a little bit about that movement and just the importance of those sides of the Paralympic movement to you? Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a gonna, that could be a very long-winded <laughs> answer. <laughs> so advocacy has obviously been a very big part of my swimming career because I have seen the Paralympics like change so much since I, I began been in the sport for so long of course it's going to change but um, I was approached to do a documentary called Rising Phoenix untitled back then but uh, it was just to, about to promote the Paralympics and of course I, I jumped straight into the opportunity and at the time it hadn't been bought by Netflix but then the documentary filmmakers sold it to Netflix and it showed in, I think, 180 countries mm. across the world. And it was the saving grace because the documentary landed the day that the Paralympics were supposed to happen yes. in, in 2020. 2020. And for me, you know, I obviously felt like there was something missing when the Games were supposed to happen and then this documentary landed and it was wonderful. And the whole world, like, loved the documentary. I even had David Beckham send me a... Uh, Instagram message Whoa. and I showed I showed one of the boys that I 
swim with and he didn't know who David <laughs> Beckham was and I'm like oh am I really in that generation already like, I feel old <laughs> <laughs> am I really like part of that next like that last generation so that was really cool and then uh when the Tokyo Games launched in 2021 the International Paralympic Committee also simultaneously launched the world's biggest human rights campaign that's ever happened and it's called We the 15 and it's basically a 10-year campaign, so the longest that's ever been. And their aim is to educate people on people with, on the rights of people with disabilities. And there's so many people who are on board with the We the 15 campaign. Like it, it's a global campaign and it's awesome. And I've already seen so much wonderful feedback just in the first year. And I'm really excited to see where we're going to be in, in 10 years' time. But yeah, it's so it's been really wonderful to be part of and to see the Paralympic landscape change so much in Australia. And I just know that if people are aware of the Paralympics and know that the Paralympics are a pathway for people with disabilities, that they're going to start training for the Games when they're younger and we're going to see like super athletes, I think, around about when Brisbane 2032 mm-hmm. hits the Olympics and Paralympics end. So I'm really excited to see where the sport goes and I'm very happy to be retiring and hanging my goggles up before I get crashed by all of these (laughs) upcoming up and coming superstar athletes. (laughs) And so is part of the work that you're doing when you finish and and retire post Commonwealth Games, is that involved in the We the 15 campaign? I'll be doing a little bit of work with the We the 15, so I'll still very much stay involved in the Paralympic movement. But, you know, in Australia, I'm working with a few other disability organisations and I'm learning about like the other side of disability because disability in sport, I think, is quite glorified Mm -hmm. and it doesn't really represent what it's really like for people out there that aren't athletes and have a disability. And so I really want to learn about what that's like and, and how we can make the world better. And I guess in a way, you know, that does align with the way the 15 campaign and the We the 15 mission so yeah I'm going to keep pushing really hard on that even after I retire because I think everyone deserves the same opportunity in every industry that the Paralympians have had in sport so far Mm -hmm. and I can still see so much room for improvement for Paralympians in sport too so yeah it's gonna be good and so can I ask you uh, you know a bit more personally how does your impairment impact you on a day-to-day basis in a way that's different to someone who doesn't have uh, an amputation? That's a great question. I actually, I don't have too much of an impairment in my day-to-day activities. Obviously, if I'm running late for the train, I can't do a 100-meter sprint to catch Mm -hmm. that train. So I usually have to wait an extra five minutes for the next one. But I do notice that the wear and tear on my body is quite significant, even at 30. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to wake up. I broke my hip two years ago. And, you know, I'm starting to wake up every morning and I'm really struggling to weight bear on that whole side of my right. body. And I can't even imagine what that's going to feel like at 50 mm-hmm. or 60. So, yeah, just the general wear and tear. I am already starting to slow up a bit at 30. <laughs> so I think I'm probably going to have more of an impairment as I'm older. But I've been very lucky to have sport and to have experts like physiotherapists to work with every single week to make sure that those risks of of developing something even worse are mitigated as best as they can be yeah. uh, and 
But and yeah. if we go back 12 years when I first started working with you and, and the physio was trying to get you to change your prosthetic limb, that was all part of that long-term concern about how your hips were going to handle things as you got older. Is that correct? Part of Because your, your amputation is reasonably high on, mm. on your leg and so your old prosthetic didn't have a lot of flexibility to put you into the right, you know, into a into a good gait. Would that be the best way of describing it? Yeah, I, you're absolutely right, Liz. I've always really struggled with my walking gait because when I lost my leg, I was three and I never really learned how to walk with a normal walking gait. And then around about the time when I first met you, I was still walking on basically a door hinge for a prosthetic and I now I'm on a leg that has microprocessors in it and computers and I still can't walk properly. Mm. When I broke my hip two years ago, I had MRI, an MRI and I have actually really bad hip dysplasia, which I never knew I had. Mm. And so that just adds a whole extra complexity. Mm-hmm. And I remember being younger and first meeting you and around that time everyone was saying to me that I needed to take care of my body because when I was older I was going to have a lot of trouble and I didn't listen back then. And I'm starting to already feel those those problems. And I've actually started walking lessons probably a little bit too late. But, yeah, I think, yeah, in hindsight, I wish that I had done more back when I was mm. younger. But, you know. But that's that's great that you've got the opportunity to do some walking lessons now to kind of try and change some old habits and some old ways and and the the muscle neural pathways you have to relearn some new pathways I'm sure that's quite fatiguing oh it is hard (laughs) my my very first lesson she was just trying to get my arms to swing at the right time (laughs) and I couldn't even manage that and it's it's fascinating like if you do something a certain way for 30 years and then you try and change Mm. that it's really like for me as an athlete I'm so used to being very good at everything I'm used to being very coordinated but when it comes to walking, I found that like meant so mentally challenging because I wasn't coordinated in that mm. way. And uh, I was just saying, like, I can't believe that I'm really struggling to do this and I'm still struggling. And I can, yeah. yeah, just like you said, you have to redevelop those neural pathways as well. And that can take some yeah, time. Yeah. So. Yeah. You have to be really patient with it because it's, it's, you know, nearly 30 years of conditioning to, to behave in a certain way. So keep it up. It'll be worth it. Thank you. I will. (laughs) So Ellie, usually I ask my guests what recommendations they have for practitioners and also for for athletes. So let's start with younger athletes. Um, What's a a recommendation that you'd like to, to give to them? I would say to be really open to their advice as a young athlete. I think it's easy to think that you want things done a certain way or you think that you know more than you actually do but the knowledge that's being shared with you is going to be shared quite differently every single time and so to be really open to like the information that you're being given and to try and utilize that in the best way that you can because I don't know when you're younger you honestly think that you can do it all Mm. and when you're older and you're become a bit more experienced, you really do open yourself up to everybody's different ideas and you evaluate evaluate what their ideas are and see how you can implement implement them in the best way possible. So yeah, just be really open to those ideas. And for practitioners or coaches or um, any specific advice for them in working with para athletes? I would say 
like I said before, every case is going to be so mm-hmm. different. So ask as many questions as you can and don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, every single time you ask a question and get an answer, the way that you approach a challenge or the way you approach training or, or anything in your profession is going to change slightly. So ask as many questions as you can. Perfect. Great. Ellie, you, you're an absolute champion and, and it's been a real honour watching you grow and develop as an athlete over, over the years, most of it from afar. Um, <laughs> we still say hello yeah. in, in athletes' villages, even though you were wearing USA yeah. for a while, but that's yeah, okay. You, You've come back to us. You didn't shun me, but <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm back home now. So I really value the fact that you've given me some some time. I know you've got a it's something to get to um, very quickly. So I finish off my podcast with asking what your favourite food is. So tell us what your favourite food is and it's obviously not cheeseburgers anymore. Uh, no, but it's kind of similar, I suppose. I make a really great chicken schnitzel toasted sandwich. <laughs> you need to do a lot of training uh, to feel like you deserve one of those. Though. <laughs> do you have a particular type of bread that you like to have with it? Only Turkish. I will not have it on any other type of bread because it toasts really well. It's like crispy on the outside and just delicious on the inside. Mm, sounds like we might need one today for lunch. It's delicious, <laughs> honestly. You'll, ne- you'll never regret a toasted chicken schnitzel sandwich. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Ellie, I'll let you go. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great talking to you. I think there's so many avenues we could go down and, and talk more about, so I might have to come back and chat more once you've retired and actually feel like you've got some energy levels back but well done to you and 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 good luck with not that you need luck uh good swimming for the Commonwealth Games (laughs) I need as much luck as I can get thank you Liz (laughs) Kelly's worked hard over the years to develop the knowledge that she needs to understand what nutrients and what foods her body needs for optimising recovery and really being able to sustain the training loads that she is under. Just as a point of clarification, she meant six to seven kilometres per session, not per week. Uh, So it is a a fairly big training load that she's under and obviously being able to sustain that over such an extended period of time has taken some close attention to detail. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. As we always ask, any feedback would be great. Any suggestions on people you'd like to hear from or topics uh, would also be great. I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Lex Gillette, who is a visually impaired long jumper and one of the most consistent jumpers in the world. 